If you'd like to explore how the story of your life intersects with your personal journey, the way that tale interacts with your community and the world around you, and change your life so the story you tell yourself matches the one that others see, I'd like to invite you to join me in the Storytelling for Personal Transformation class. Together we'll walk through the methods I've used during my own ongoing process of change and pull in my more than a decade of experience helping people tell their story while looking to pop culture, fiction, and mythology to see the connections between you, the world, and what you love. Enrollment is now open. Find out more at thepermaculturepodcast.com slash storytelling. If you feel comfortable with your personal story, but would like to improve your design process or the way you communicate about what it is exactly that you do, I also offer one-on-one sessions in storytelling for design and storytelling for business. Contact me directly to share a little more about yourself and see if either of these programs would be a good fit for you. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or you can call or text 717-827-6266. Now through the end of October is the annual Summer to Fall fundraiser and your support is vital in deciding if the Permaculture Podcast continues for another year. Give a one-time donation online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. By mail, Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. Or become a recurring supporter by joining the Permaculture Podcast Patreon community at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In today's interview, the first in a two-part series, my friend and colleague Dan Palmer of Making Permaculture Stronger gives me a sense of vicarious joy to share this conversation with you, as he's done something that's on my list of dream podcast experiences. Dan sits down face-to-face with David Holmgren at Meliodora, and together they talk about the early history of permaculture. From David's lips to our ears, we hear a first-hand account of his days at university, meeting Bill Mollison and their initial work together, to the impact of David's second permaculture mentor, Hakai Tane. Enjoy this conversation with Dan and David, and I'll join you again after. Good to welcome you here. <laughs> and I'm very excited to be here with this microphone between us and to have this opportunity to have you share the story of your journey with permaculture design process over the decades, from when before permaculture was a thing till, till afterwards, and so I'm really excited to to take our time and, and, and draw that out and share, make that more available, share that with others. Yeah, and of course that's something we've worked on together in courses, our personal journeys uh, uh, with that. And certainly through those courses that working together, that's sort of elicited for me, uncovered different aspects of understanding my own journey Yeah, through the, the lens of design process. I suppose, you know, thinking about it uh, in terms of childhood experiences, I was always a sort of a constructor, builder, you know, making cubbies, constructing things, and yet never had any sort of family role models for that. My father wasn't particularly practical with tools, and yet I was always in what workshop there was uh, in our suburban home as a a young child and so that thing of making things imagining things which are don't exist and then bringing them to life was was definitely part of 
childhood experience. Mm-hmm. I don't know particularly why in my last years of high school I had some vague notion that I might enrol in West Australian University in architecture. But I left to travel around Australia. I was hitchhiking mad in 1973. And in that process came across a lot of different ideas to do with the counterculture and alternative ways of living. But most significantly, I came across a course in Tasmania in Hobart called Environmental Design, and I met some of the students who were in it. And I'd realised by that stage that I was not cut out to do some sort of conventional university course of any type, uh, that I was too radical and free in my thinking and wasn't wanting to be constrained in the, within any sort of discipline or, you know, accounting for things through you know, exam processes. Or, and what age were you at this? Uh, so I, I was 18 yep. at that time. And this course in environmental design really attracted me. It had a situation where uh, undergraduate students who were doing a generalist degree in environmental design were sometimes working on projects with postgraduate students who were specialising in architecture, landscape architecture or urban planning. There was no fixed curriculum. There was no fixed timetable. Uh, Half the staff budget was for visiting lecturers and outside professionals. There was a self-assessment process at the end of each semester, which then led to a major study at the end of the three-year generalist degree. And there was the same self-assessment process for the postgraduate thing. So you got up to the final finishing line and then had to show (laughs) your results. And that was to a panel that included outside professionals that you had a say in choosing as well as the staff did. Sounds suitably radical. (laughs) Uh, I believe it was the most radical experiment in tertiary education in Australia's history, uh, set up by visionary Hobart architect Barry McNeil, who saw that there was no point teaching design professionals a specific set of skills because the world was changing so fast that by the time they came to practice, those skills could be irrelevant and that you had to teach them more how to problem solve, how to think, and that they would find and develop the skills that were relevant through that way. So, yeah, that's what really led me back to Tasmania the following year to enrol in environmental design. But as part of that first year, I explored a lot of different aspects. I was actually doing the sort of backyard self-sufficiency thing in a, a rented house and was documenting the the organic gardens, the compost making, the baking bread at home, all of that self-reliance that I would call retro suburbia mm-hmm. now in a rented house was actually part of my study project. Oh, right. yeah. You know, I, but I was also involved in projects with postgraduate planning students working with urban conservation activist groups trying to stop high-rise development in the historic Battery Point precinct. 
and, you know, setting up shopfront information for the community to explain planning law and, you know, plot ratios of how big you can build a building for how much open space and all of those uh, sorts of things. So ranged across quite a sort of a, a diverse interest area and you know met a lot of a lot of people that had come to environmental design if you like as refugees from all the design courses around Australia so it sort of gathered all the radicals at a time when most people went to university in the state where they uh, lived uh, whereas more than half of the students in environmental design were from outside okay of Tasmania. And of course, the whole interest in ecology was a huge part of that and the crossover between ecology and design. That was a, a theme of the, of the school. Well, it was something that was identified as a huge area of interest of so many students. Okay. And at that time, so much so that they felt they needed to have an ecologist actually on the staff, you know, because... Most of the staff, of course, were landscape architects, uh, architects and, uh, and planners. And uh, I was actually on the selection panel <laughs> as an undergraduate student for the person who ended up becoming my supervisor in the course. Uh, so that, yeah, was a context where came across a lot of radical ideas in design. But I also still felt you know, quite the outsider. Mm -hmm. And I can remember a particular seminar that was actually about the design of the Australian backyard. And people within the department were basically decrying how terrible, you know, backyards were designed and front gardens and, you know, people doing it themselves, how how pathetic and hopeless it was. And I can remember being really outraged and getting up and on my soapbox and saying, look, this is one of the last things that Australians still do for themselves is they design and create their own mm-hmm. gardens and backyard spaces. They, you know, hardly any of them build their houses anymore. Are we a radical design school intending to extend design literacy and design capability as a a universal literacy or are we about commandeering and colonizing another space Mm -hmm. taking something else off people and professionalizing it (laughs) so i have a strong memory of that being part of my early thinking about design that design was a sort of a literacy that should be Universal. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting for me to already hear, obviously, permaculture bells going off because there's already that pre-existing overlap between ecology and design. And then mm. when you bring the flavour of being in control of your own design processes and designing your own spaces, you're well on the on that mm. trajectory already. Yeah. And did, I wanted to ask, at this stage, were you being presented with, it doesn't sound like it was that kind of school where they said, here's the design process you're all going to use for the rest of your careers, but were you getting a feel for a kind of a, an approach to design or a process mm. that, at that stage, or was it still quite open. Yeah, it was very free and open. And I suppose within the design professions, environmental design was either regarded as the best course in Australia because 
you know, it involved outside professionals. You had to do the postgraduate degree part-time and have a job in the field. So, you know, there was a, a huge amount of practical reality that, you know, uh, was encouraging to design professionals or other design professionals regarded as the worst course in Australia because people weren't required to actually sit at a drawing board and or, you know, or actually learn any particular thing, mm-hmm. you know, classic principles of architectural design or uh, anything. But, you know, I remember sort of being aware of, uh, you know, quite a strong interest in McCarg's ideas were, you know, one of the ideas that was around. But there was also others that uh, sort of involved design in, in perhaps a different way, like George McRoby, a colleague of E.F. Schumacher, um, famous for, of course, um, writing the book Small is Beautiful, which was published just a year before I started uh, environmental design. He was there for uh, six months teaching uh, the whole intermediate technology notions of designing an appropriate technology uh, suitable to scale, especially for uh, developing countries rather than just imposing large-scale systems that were inappropriate. So there was certainly different design contexts and also, yeah, design process, but certainly not a there was no clear didactic yeah. direction. The whole thing was a sort of a chaotic exploration. Really. And, and you, you said you were documenting what you're doing in the rental with the compost making and everything. Mm. Were you also paying attention at that stage to, you know, the, the process side of things? or Not so much. I think I was sort of quite, to some extent, outcome-oriented. Yeah. But, uh, you know, definitely grappling with that process of how you record your ideas and involve ideas on paper Mm -hmm. rather than just literally starting something with your hands, which, you know, is sort of how a lot of people do things in the most sort of rudimentary design process. So definitely that thinking through and documenting ideas and, and then sort of implementing those. But, you know, pretty sort of, I suppose, limited investigations of the process. But it was in that first year that my interest really gravitated around food production and more broadly agriculture as humanity's prime way for providing for its needs and looking at that crossover between, if you like, landscape architecture primarily as a profession, you'd say, and ecology and how that applied to agriculture and I could see the overlap between two but not between the three mm-hmm. and it was at that sort of pivotal time that I, I met Bill Mollison and he didn't strike me as a designer and I don't think I was looking for that. I was very disappointed with um, the person who was chosen as the ecologist on staff and that you helped choose oh yes well i didn't get uh, <laughs> the, the person uh, that's another story <laughs> as to as to who ended up and who it could have been and mm-hmm. other people who applied and, or whatever but um i suppose i'd already come to sort of 
view about a lot of biological science was highly reductionist and that, in fact, even within ecology, there was this tension between reductionist approaches, which would be regarded as sort of mainstream approaches to science and and the um, more holistic. So I was sort of very much looking for that. And when I met Bill Mollison through chance, he was at a seminar in environmental design. He wasn't running it. He was just someone who made some comments in it that I thought were really interesting. And, you know, I went to speak to him afterwards and suddenly this opened up of, oh, this person thinks ecologically, holistically. And through a chance of him inviting me to um, come to his place, since I was looking for somewhere to live and I was also a bit disabled, I had a, a broken collarbone as a result of a motorbike accident. So I suppose it was sort of him taking in a homeless wife, you could say. <laughs> uh, that, um, you know, we began a discussion about what I might focus on in the second year at environmental design. I mean, at the time, he was a lecturer in the psychology faculty, um, a senior tutor, actually. And so, you know, the connection with design was sort of really not through him at all. And in a lot of ways, I didn't particularly, as as I worked with him, see him primarily as a designer. Mm-hmm. I mean, an amazing polymath um, genius and primarily a, a, an ecological thinker. And was he was he lecturing psychology at the same school? No, no, at, at the uh, older tertiary institution, okay. the University of Tasmania, where I was at the uh, new uh, College of Advanced Education, as it was yep. uh, then called, where the environmental design school was. And so, and, and you were saying he, you had this kind of um, hankering for a more holistic approach to ecology, and he was yeah. an example of that. So, you, were you learning a lot from him early on, soaking that up? Or? Oh, enormously. You know, so our relationship was very much student mentor, and the seed of the permaculture idea sort of came in a discussion, uh, you know, towards the end of, of, of 74 and in him asking me, so knowing how free environmental design was, so what are you going to work on next year? What are you going to look at? And I said, you know, that I'm interested in this crossover between these three uh, things that don't seem to cross over at all. And can I just clarify? You said you were clear how two of them overlapped. Was that the landscape architecture and ecology? That you yeah. Were about the agriculture. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see the. Uh, I saw overlap between ecology and agriculture. Okay. In uh, agroecology ideas early and organics. Uh, you know, organic mm-hmm. farming was. Although organic farming sort of began in the 1930s, it was really incorporating early ecological ideas in its reaction against industrial uh, farming. So I could see crossover of any two of them, but not I couldn't see anywhere where all three were brought together. Um, So the agroecology, for example, didn't seem to have much of a design focus, certainly not a a physical landscape layout, how do things relate mm-hmm. in space? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was mostly concerned with agronomy, husbandry, you know, those, those processes. And 
There was some crossover between landscape architecture and agriculture, but really as cosmetic design sort of overlay in some particular affluent parts or the conservation of agriculture in a larger sense, uh, like McCarg's work. You know, of, okay, where are we going to sort of protect agricultural land from inappropriate development and uh, prevent sort of conflicts of different types of land use, the sort of whole zoning ideas, you know, but that was sort of treating agriculture as a sort of a system that there was some sort of planning design overlay, but not actually involved mm-hmm. in the essence of agriculture itself. And what did you talk about the overlap between design and eco- landscape architecture and ecology? Yeah, well, uh, for example, one of my teachers in the course who had a lot of connection with Phil Simons, she was one of the first landscape architects in Australia to use uh, in quite a few of her designs uh, local indigenous okay. species. Yeah. So that very strong crossover that we, we had those early debates about, you know, native versus exotic, you know, in those years. So she was one of, yeah, the pioneers mm-hmm. of that sort of thinking that was already there of how does landscape design create ecologies that, you know, can support the diversity of, yep. uh, of nature and especially indigenous. Yeah, yep. well, that's nature. great. It's, I haven't heard it quite that way before. It's so clear, you know, and you, and you had yourself a very juicy question yeah. or, or a space of how would these things overlap that obviously yeah. dicta- like influenced the course of the rest of your life. And so when I sort of put that to Mollison, that's, that's what I want to work on. Of course, he had a million ideas and he said, okay, well, how about this for an idea? <laughs> and he said, if most places on the planet you know, nature creates some sort of forest as an optimal ecosystem response to climate and geology and uh, landscape to optimise production and and diversity from a sort of an ecological point of view. Why doesn't our agriculture, if not look like a forest, uh, literally, why doesn't it function like a forest? For example, why is it not dominated by perennial mm. plants? Why is it dominated by annual plants? And I said, oh, that is perfect. You know, that, yes, it's a design question, you know, but it's it's fundamentally looking at the design that nature creates and why aren't don't we appear to be using that mm. in our prime activity on the planet, agriculture, by which we feed ourselves? <laughs> I sort of regard that discussion as the seed of, you know, the permaculture concept. And so I started sort of working on the permaculture ideas, you know, when I started uh, the next year in 75. And it it basically consumed all my time, mm-hmm. f- full time, and the staff were concerned that I wasn't doing anything else. Uh, <laughs> but I was free to do that and... So Mollison and I were actually developing a permaculture garden at his property on the fringes of Hobart, two and a quarter acre semi-rural property, about the same oh, size as this yeah, this yeah, place at Meliodora. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it had forest on it and it had a history of he'd owned it for some time. And, of course, 
he'd uh, defended it and saved it from the great 67 bushfires not many years before I, I was there. And there was other people all around in that area who were developing self-reliance as part of, you know, what we were on about, you know, at that time. And a lot of the interest initially in that was around what you would call economic botany, the exploration of useful plants from which we might, the components from which we might build permaculture systems yep. and especially obviously perennial plants and especially trees so you know there were a lot of elements that weren't primarily design process in that yeah and in some ways you know i have said even though i was sort of a bit separated and critical from a lot of what i saw in the in the design professions and even in environmental design. And I was sort of off on this other tack and, you know, Mollison as my mentor who was not really a designer, you know, that in a way the the design side of permaculture sort of in a way came more, I see, through me, through the lineage of environmental design and the, and the radical ideas of of design that were part of part of that school, and and at this stage, in terms of the, I mean, it's a pretty. I mean, 1974 was a hell of a year. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Two years after the Club of Rome limits to growth report, one year after the first oil crisis that precipitated the Western world into the first uh, economic recession. Of course, 1972 was also the election of the Whitlam government in Australia after 23 years of conservative government and a whole huge sort of cultural explosion of of different ideas and different possibilities, uh, which sort of led to the great constitutional crisis of 1975. And, of course, it was the end of the long-running war in Vietnam and eventually the American defeat in Vietnam. Of course, Australia pulled the troops out in 72. So there was a huge sort of social and economic and political turmoil at that time and an openness, uh, certainly in academia, to sort of new radical ideas. So environmental design as that radical school ran from 1970 to 1980, and then it was basically emasculated, turned back into a conventional design course and moved from its uh, Hobart base to Launceston. Okay. So it's very sort of emblematic of mm-hmm. uh, the 70s. Mm-hmm. You got your timing right. Well. <laughs> yeah, the timing for, for permaculture, generally the huge interest there was in those sorts of ideas and, you know, related ideas in science, for example, the whole embodied energy concept, how we use energy as a a measure of uh, human systems. In 1979, I went to the ANZAS conference in Hobart, and there were five papers on net energy analysis of agricultural systems. You know, move forward a decade, there would have been none of that. So there was a a huge interest in 
all sorts of things that, yeah, included also design process. I mean, just as an example of that first year I was there, that project worked on with the uh, Battery Point Urban Conservation. There was another project working as consultants to the State Department of Planning as to how to do for the first time a strategic plan for Hobart with community consultation. Because mm. up to that point, planning had just been engineers and stuff deciding, yep. you know, where they imagine freeways are going to be built and new urban expansion and, and whatever. And so all of those ideas of people being involved in design process on in things that affect them uh, at that social level was, of course, part of that, that, was in, that in, period. In the, in, the, in the atmosphere. And, and would you say that the, that the period of, I guess, in a way it sounds like that pivotal conversation about what you're going to do with your project next year was a was a kind of a, a moment? And then did that culminate uh, yeah. with Permaculture One or what, what was the... Yeah, well, I think in a lot of ways for me that that did culminate in the publication of Permaculture One in 1978 and the huge interest that there was. Whereas, you know, for Mollison, that was a stepping stone moving out of the university, you know, giving up his um, tenured <laughs> position and going to sort of spruik permaculture to the world, uh, not just through the counterculture and, you know, the first areas of interest, but sort of more broadly and huge popularisation. Whereas I felt at that time not quite a fraud, but I didn't have the broad base of experience that Mollison had in so many areas being a generation older than me, apart from anything else. So my interest was in building my practical skills and I decided I definitely wasn't in 76 I completed the environmental design degree I didn't go back to do the postgraduate degree because I was actually at that stage so I suppose sick of or beyond wanting think about things academically and I wanted to do things with my hands Mm. and initially a lot of that well it already was happening as gardening forestry uh, ecological hunting but also a a big role in building and uh, you know build a a big timber barn on a property that Mollison and I and others had uh, bought and to develop as permaculture place and Mm. then I worked with a friend of mine who was a builder who was my age and ran his own building business as his offsider. And we were doing yeah, quite complex building projects and learning by doing. And really, for me, I didn't like the idea of design in whatever field disconnected from the practice of if you like, implementation, yep. that that separation it wasn't really viable. Mm-hmm. And apart from its sort of class implications of there's the designers, then the plotters who implemented, I didn't respect any of that sort of idea. So I was, yeah, I was much more sort of interested in sort of doing stuff and building a, a skill base. But in that process, I was really went through 
several years, really, I suppose, beginning about uh, 76, with starting to build a skill base for advising other people. So a sort of a a self-directed apprenticeship, really, (laughs) working on other people's projects, um, some paid, some voluntary, um, you know, doing the odd design consultancy. And then that led to my mother out of the blue buying uh, in late middle age uh, a 180-acre rural bush property on the far south coast of New South Wales. And I thought, I need to go and help her get set up and build a proper passive solar house and get gravity-feed water supply systems and, you know, appropriate fencing so she can have gardens and and it be fire-safe and, and in fact, sort of implement all those ideas. So I'd been working at that stage, you know, continuously from uh, when I left environmental design at the end, uh, graduated at the end of 76 to 79, those three years I'd worked, you know, incredibly in lots of different ways, but I'd also discovered my second mentor, really, uh, in New Zealand, uh, Hakaitane, who sort of in a way I regard as my second mentor in permaculture. So I met Hakai at the uh, Down to Earth Festival organised by uh, ex-Deputy Prime Minister Jim Cairns as part of the countercultural movement in Australia, the Down to Earth movement. After I'd been there at that festival with Bill Mollison where there was this huge interest in permaculture, I hadn't seen Bill for quite a while and we ran a, a workshop under a big shady tree with that about 150 people came to. And uh, anyway, I, uh, I met Hakai after that workshop and we wandered around this thousand acre grazing property, exploring things and looking after he had given me a comment about something that Mollison had said that just made me sit up. He, he said, oh, Mollison mentioned that this degraded grazing land needed gorse spread over it, which is, of course, a, a noxious weed, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it would improve the land, you know, damaged by all the sheep uh, overgrazing, typically sort of uh, confrontational sort of thing. For, yeah. Yeah. Harkai said, I'm not sure that I agree with Mollison about gorse as a, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a, a conventional argument about um, invasive exotic species. And he said, I think briar rose is a more appropriate species for this, which is, of course, another spiny, noxious <laughs> weed. And, you know, I thought, who is this guy? You know, like, what does he know? <laughs> and, you know, we spent a whole lot of time looking around that landscape and his knowledge in reading the landscape just fascinated me and we spent days together. And he invited me back to New Zealand to to help set up permaculture in New Zealand, the Permaculture Association of New Zealand. He was already a, a member of the, um, the Farm Forestry Association of New Zealand, the Soil Association, the Organic Organisation, and the Tree Crops Association. 
but he was actually trained in land law, uh, so he had a legal degree, and planning and geography, and had studied at ANU, knew the Monero country very well, worked in British Columbia, but was really an adopted New Zealand as his sort of uh, not just home, but sort of like spiritual home almost, and taken a name which was Japanese and Maori, (laughs) uh, but was originally Australian. And again, much older than me, but not as many years difference as uh, with Mollison. So in working with Hakai in New Zealand in 1979 and then 79, uh, yeah, and then again in 84, he taught me a lot about the whole land systems approach to understanding land He'd actually done the land system study for the New Zealand Lands Department in the high country, dry cold grazing country of the South Island. Uh, so mapping all of the, the land in a way that integrates the geology, the topography, the climate, and what he called the biophysical resources that express those underlying energetic and geologic forces in soils, plants and animals. And that that was the basis of what we would call sustainable land use. You had to sort of have everything mapped onto those things, both at a large scale, but also down at a fine scale. Can I ask, because I know you learned a lot of holistic ecology with Mollison, and you, I know you moved around the country a lot. And mm. so what was the difference in, in reading landscape? Was it kind of like going, going deeper or was it in a different direction? Or? I, look, I was already in that process of reading landscape but in the early research for uh, permaculture because I would go and visit old forest arboreta and abandoned gardens, places where people had done stuff and then nature had sort of taken over. Mm. I found those much more interesting from a permaculture point of view to give instruction as to what is this sort of intersection between humans doing stuff and Mm. and nature doing stuff than going to some pristine wilderness. So I was already developing those skills, and a lot of that was about ID. What is this tree? What, you know, where is it growing? Why is it there? Mm. Those sorts of things. So when I met Hakai, his mastery of that and especially a deeper understanding of soil, not in the sense of the agronomists focusing on, you know, what's the condition of the A1 horizon, the topsoil, but understanding the regolith, the deep structures underneath that often determine, uh, you know, the moisture availability and possibilities of deep nutrient mining and of different geological strata that would produce quite different ecosystems and had quite different potential to be developed and quite different vulnerabilities to land degradation mm-hmm. processes. Is, is, that a, is that an actual word, regolith? Yeah, that, that, that's the, describing the material underneath from which yep. soils emerge, whether that's the bedrock or deep deposits of a, alluvial material. And in New Zealand, the 
newness of the country compared with Australia made all of those reading landscape skills so much sharper, so much easier to see, whereas in Australia a lot of the processes are so subtle, so ancient, it's harder uh, to see them. You know, there was also understandings that Hakai convinced me that the sort of permaculture vision of broad acre integrated land uses of agriculture, horticulture, aquaculture, beekeeping, forestry, all of these things being integrated together couldn't come about under our freehold land tenure system. So that understanding like from land law and from history of our ancestors before modern land title and the enclosures of the commons and all of those issues learnt that, yeah, the way we own and control land is actually a huge factor in how it could be designed. Uh, So it was sort of drawing me into understanding those sort of cultural institutional uh, forces that shape design. But I suppose the most important, really, learnings with Hakai was clearly moving away from a sort of master plan, architectural, design it on paper and then implement it idea, which is always a bit problematic when that methodology was taken from designing a building to firstly trying to design a garden because you're dealing with biological entities that change and, and, and a whole lot of complexities about soil that you don't fully understand, or shifting it to urban planning where cities are so big and complex that it's not sort of really possible for that to work. You could say, of course, that, you know, Christopher Alexander was very strongly critiquing that within architecture too, that, that it doesn't really work. And I was sort of vaguely aware of, of that critique mm-hmm. because Alexander was one of the thinkers that was, you know, influencing people in environmental design. But because my focus was more biological, I didn't sort of pick up so much on, yeah, yeah. on his work. But Hakai sort of really introduced the framework of strategic planning, which had sort of become a tool in the planning profession, but really came out of the military, as he explained it, where they had to act with limited knowledge and where they didn't control all the factors. And that that idea of having frameworks of action, but you don't really know how that is going to express itself in final design form. And we started applying that to how does that strategic design process apply to what we call tree crop agriculture all the interest of how do you not just have grazing animals around a landscape or annual crops but these permanent long-lived structures of tree crop systems that were sort of a lot of our central focus because like me he was a a tree crop nut (laughs) he was you know obsessed with trees and so you know, that application of that sort of design process uh, was very much part of the 
mm-hmm. learning from yeah, working oh, this with is, him. This is really, really fascinating. And going, you were saying earlier before you even met Harkai that one of the reasons um, after the origination of permaculture where Mollison took off around the world and, and made it public, shared it, and you, and you you had that sense of wanting to get more hands-on skills and building skills, and you mentioned the non you you're, you had a sense of that that it wasn't viable to have a separation between even if in some cases white collar design and blue collar implementation, but that, mm. that was already a an irk, and it sounds like yeah, Harkai, very early on, yeah, that was already there, and then Harkai really helped you, yeah, because he was very sort of practical hands-on as well as working at this high-level consultancy to to government and even business uh but uh, you know later on he he did a review of the oh no maybe it was before that time as there he had a consultancy working for the state government of new south wales to review the sydney basin regional plan the whole of the sydney oh. metropolitan area it had become a political hot potato internally and they decided unusually in those years to get an outside consultant and he somehow got the job but in the process he went and lived in five different locations around Sydney always traveled with taxi drivers you know and sort of explored the multiple cities and spaces that Sydney really was rather than the myopic view as he said of the planners sitting in the tower overlooking Hyde Park, that they had a view of the city and the suburbs. Mm-hmm. When he said already Parramatta was the, the largest retailing centre in Australia and there were mu- what he identified as 21 centres in Sydney that had city-level function. You know, so he was an iconoclast in, in many different ways mm-hmm. within the planning profession, but he was also a beekeeper and totally, you know, hands-on person, uh, you know, that practical doing mm-hmm. as well as, um, you know, design and thinking. And incidentally, I just had a flashback of a, there was a permaculture convergence in Sydney some years back. And it was, it was pretty amazing because Harkai came and Bill Morrison was ah, there. Ah, yes. And you were there and um, Peter Andrews was there <laughs> from Natural Sequence Farming. And I remember Peter talking about how Harkai, I think early on, had actually helped him get started with natural sequence farming yeah well i think the connection was that hakai was asked by the bankers who were funding uh, andrews and he was in financial difficulties and that the i think it was the bank uh, the westpac bank asked hakai to assess whether this guy's stuff had any validity and he got to know Andrews really well and he said yeah this is absolutely fundamental and I remember Hakai telling me about it long before you know Andrews became you know better known but they were two very strong characters and not atypically they had they had a sort of falling out later my understanding of that was actually that that Hakai saw that Andrews insights included a lot of Indigenous knowledge. And Hakai thought he should acknowledge that more strongly because Hakai was very strong on that Indigenous mm-hmm. knowledge, but he was also so uh, challenging in, in thinking about all of those things as well. 
Yeah, so he was a, a sort of big influence on the whole design process. In 1979, he encouraged me to uh, get a camera and record what I see in the landscape. So he sort of really put me on that lifelong journey of uh, reading landscape. And I certainly, that began also my, how I applied that in my consultancy work of how do you look at landscape using the, the, the skills of reading landscape, but also then in time trying to design in ways that is sensitive to not just the form of the land, but the actual different types of land, recognising that first. Yep. So using that land systems approach, which had mainly been used at a macro scale, bringing it down to a much smaller scale of permaculture sites to say, okay, you know, where's the changes in the land and understanding those first and mapping those before you you, you start carving up the land into its uses or allocating it to, yep. to yeah. different and, things. And of course, you're well and truly into the domain of design process here where it's a key part of it has to be deeply immersing in what's already there, what's happening, what are the, yeah. what are the land units... So, I mean, the first really big project in a, applying that was uh, my mother's property on the south coast of New South Wales because it was 180 acres of forest. There were 12 different eucalypt species, had three gullies on it and boundary to a permanent creek and two different geologies. And as I analysed it in a case study booklet that we produced on it called Permaculture in the Bush, it had three different land systems. Mm -hmm. And I sort of used that macro stand back from look at the big patterns first before going down into the details, looking across the landscape and saying, okay, where are potential house sites? Identifying five of those and, um, and then checking them against different criteria so I started yeah that sort of using ways of scoring things to come to complex decision making where is rather than getting locked into single factor design which so a lot of those sort of processes and it was also interesting as a design process for me in that I had the contour maps and I had photographs my mother had taken and I had her to interrogate, but I actually didn't get to the property for six months into the project, mm-hmm. you know, because I was in Tasmania and then we were back in Western Australia selling the family home. And when we finally arrived at the land and drove down this bush track, I already knew what was around the corner from just going over contour maps and trying to get another bit of information. It was squeezing more information out of it. So it was a a very sort of weird experience, but a very useful one in terms of design process to explore something that closely through indirect means and then, you know, and then set up camp, you know, and that very process of no don't make any assumptions you know you've got a whole lot of stuff in your head you know none of it means anything 
at the moment, you know. Mm-hmm. So that process of how do you actually set up a basic camp and and the first lesson about, oh, yes, don't set it up on the best spot because mm-hmm. <laughs> that could be where you're actually going to develop. And, yes. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, there was also a huge number of practical learnings there in directing earthworks and directing other people's work in in building a passive solar house. I worked a lot in in that side and I, I was actually really passionate about passive solar design. So ironically, that project was also quite a consolidation with me as, in practitioner terms, as an ecological builder more than an ecological farmer. It took me many years to sort of look back and say, well, actually, you know, sort of, I've been more of a, a builder and more of my design work has involved, if you like, a lot of the non-living elements, the infrastructure, of mm. earthworks and uh, water supply systems and fencing and all that infrastructure as well as with, with building. And, you know, that knowledge base from the practical arts of woodworking and the processing of, of timber from tree to sawmilling, drying, processing, using timber was a greater development of skill in that area than than I did with horticulture, let alone animal husbandry. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and sound, that sounds like that was a that, that step from you're already very hands-on done a lot of building and stuff, but to then be working with contractors as well, which is another step and, and yeah. work, working in directly through them or collaborating. Well, it was mostly friends working at mates rates, yep. jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. There was, so it, it was the beginning of that sort of um, artisanal sort of building process and definitely doing a lot of thinking things through and planning on paper mm-hmm. and then being prepared to change the yep. design. Yep. And, of course, when you are actually doing something yourself that you have gone to huge efforts to put on paper, but you see yourself as a learner and you are at the receiving end, it's it's very clear that you will change the design. (laughs) Whereas when it is separated and there is someone invested with the authority of being the designer and this person, the builder or someone down further down the chain is experiencing the disconnect between the design and reality. There's a power relationship, a whole lot of investment that it's hard to sort of bring that through unless, of course, those designers very deliberately work in yes. in that way. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like with like in that model when there's a clash between reality and design, the native inclination is to try and make design win. Yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, ultimately cannot do this is cool. I'd be really keen to hear about the transition into because you talked about how you'd done some sound like more informal consultancy back in Tasmania and going mm. through the properties, but the transition into professional yeah. design consultancy is that is that an appropriate thing to yeah tell us about next? Yeah, because really that project uh, on the south coast in New South Wales was really the final or most important project that really led to me setting up Holmgren Design Services as a registered business in 1983. 
just a, a couple of years after um, completed uh, the initial phase of development of, um, with my mother of, of the property and also the documentation that I took to the first permaculture convergence in 1984 of a case study of that property. I presented two things. One was a paper on reading landscape, which I saw was trying to convey to the young permaculture movement where people had already, there was four years of people having done the early permaculture design courses, rushing out as enthusiastic people trying to design the world, not necessarily <laughs> being uh, making a very good job of that. And I was I was trying to sort of introduce the idea that the skill in reading landscape is one of the core skills for a permaculture designer, having to come onto a site where people don't necessarily have a deep multi-generational historic connection with the land, where there's not necessarily good mapping of soils or, you know, even topography, even decent contour maps, and having to advise design decisions and needing to be able to read a lot of things very quickly in the landscape. So there was that and there was the case study because I saw that there was a lot of the talk-to-do ratio in the permaculture movement felt to me quite high. The talk-to-do ratio, yeah. Yeah, that's what Hakai <laughs> called it. He talked about how the talk-to-do ratio was higher in Australia than New Zealand. Right. Much higher in America, he said. <laughs> Um, I do. I've got to say, I, do, I, I had another flashback at that time. I'm, I'm, I met him in Sydney when he got up to speak. He talked about the reason no one ever saw him is because he very rarely goes to convergences because he prefers to be doing yeah. <laughs> and minimise the talking. So he was walking, walking his own talk there. Yeah. So the the case study documentation of places that had been permaculture designed and then implemented rather than just things where people were saying, oh, there, there is something that illustrates permaculture ideas. Mm. Great. That's really good. But was permaculture actually influencing how that came about? Mm. Because that next test of the concept, can people use these ideas to actually end up creating wider appropriate systems that reflect permaculture ethics and design principles. And so then to sort of document that design process and and how that was sort of implemented. So I saw it as important as a sort of at an ethical level of being guinea pigs of Mm -hmm. trying out your ideas Mm -hmm. yourself. Uh, That yeah, was all happening around that same time. And in 84, I also went back to New Zealand and worked with Hakai again and through the the New Zealand Tree Crops Association working on this, how do these ideas apply to actually implementing the transformation of pastoral landscapes into uh, multi-purpose tree crop dominated landscapes. Would you be able to just say a brief word? I know you've talked to me in the past about how you, you grew up in a very free-thinking, kind of rational, intellectual household, and, and you've told me a few stories over, over the years about how during your time with Harkai, he bought, like he get, he'd give you spontaneous lectures about Lao Tzu, and he bought a sort of Eastern mysticism flavour. Did that have any yeah. 
impact or bearing or relevance to design process? Ah, yeah. Well, actually, that reminds me, yes, of uh, uh, a story I have told a, a, a few times. I suppose I would see myself growing up as a super rationalist, even as a child, I would wake up and not remember any of my dreams, probably because the dream world was like just too inconsistent with, with reality. And there were a few things that broke down that process. The primary one was the experience of, of LSD made it clear to me there were more things in the human mind that could possibly be comp- comprehended through simple sort of reductionist uh, <laughs> methods. But Another marker in that was certainly working with Hakai, setting up this site for these workshops over Easter in 1979 on a high country grazing property. And we were looking at, okay, where are people going to park? Where's the sort of the camp kitchen going to be? Where's the, the sauna by the stream? And, you know, just designing a sort of a small festival space and both of us as designers you know just running through all the factors and you know like oh yeah but what about this and then you know circulation here or you know like what if that's wet and (laughs) etc anyway we got to a sort of a bit of a stumbling point where there was this one option over here and one there and we'd sort of run through a few of the factors and Hakai said oh, this is a case for the coin, <laughs> and pulls out a coin and flips it, <laughs> heads and tails. And I was like flabbergasted, you know, on this idea that you could actually make a decision, a design decision, based on the flip of a coin. And then he sort of gave me this lecture about the I Ching and a whole lot of ideas in Eastern mysticism about firstly connecting to what, what it, at a deeper level your feelings about what is the right thing and part of it is your reaction to the chance decision but also that yeah you uncover some sort of you know different way of accessing um, part of understanding so that was you know one of the stepping stones in that sort of breakdown of that um, super rationalist control another one was actually when I was working with my mother on developing the property, the early stages of the design, and we'd identified which where the house site is going to be on this 180 acres and and looking at gravity feed, water supply, dam site options, all sorts of different factors. And it was all sort of fairly thick regrowth, logged over bush site that we'd chosen. So it actually involved clearing quite a lot of trees and a lot of thick regrowth. And I'd been working through with my inclinometer, looking at tree heights and, you know, because you're talking about forest trees that were 35 metres tall. And, okay, where, how are we going to make the clearing, minimising and retention of trees that want to keep and get sun, full sun access into the passive solar building and full winter sun access to gardens? And you're trying to do that through thick young regrowth and big emergent trees. And I'm sort of using the inclinometer, looking up at tree canopies, sun angles, you know, working backwards and forwards. And this is over a period of more than a week wandering around in the bush. And in the meantime, my mother had wandered, 
and, and, and found this old box that had been left with some rubbish. And she stood up and she said, oh, I reckon the house should be about there. <laughs> and as I worked around, I ended up coming back to where the box was. <laughs> Now, it may have been sort of completely dumb luck, but, you know, it was that sort of finally that that rational evidence-based process actually somehow connecting with something that came completely intuitively. And that was David Holmgren, interviewed by Dan Palmer. Find out more about the development of David's demonstration site and other work at meliodora.com. Dan is at makingpermaculturestronger.net. Together, they're working on a film project called Reading Landscape. You can find out more about the film and donate to that project at readinglandscape.org. As this episode goes live at the end of July 2021, they've raised $11,000 of the $35,000 goal, with another month left in the campaign. I don't just share that with you as a link to follow. However, I also donated to this campaign, as it's something I believe we need now more than ever. You'll, of course, find links to all that and more, in the resource section of the show notes. There I'll also link to my earlier interviews with David Holmgren. If you give those a listen, you can get a sense of the importance of bringing different voices into the mix. Even when it comes to sitting down and interviewing the same person, each conversation and what we can learn is truly unique. That's also why I invite anyone, including you, to reach out to me if you'd like to record a conversation and share it with me for consideration to include as an episode of the Permaculture Podcast. You can also get in touch if you'd like to discuss starting your own show. I'm more than happy to have the conversation. Call or text 717-827-6266. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If you'd like to take the slow road and correspond by post, I always enjoy receiving your letters. That address is Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. I'll join you again in a week or two with the second part of this conversation between David Holmgren and Dan Palmer. Until the next time our paths cross, spend each day considering your design journey and own unique story while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.